the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. If you Google demise of Detroit, Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break, the photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely 702,000. At its peak, it was over a million, 900,000 strong. The number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings, the amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s. Now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, is Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy, and um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. Boy, this this demise of what we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who, who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper... Uh, or watching the news, has got to see it all around us. As much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a a great and proud city called Detroit, a lot of that's going on in the family and in, quite frankly, the church today in the West, too, isn't it? Well, it is. If you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks and you see all of these horror stories, that's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what, what happened to God? Uh, What happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall-off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades. In the United States, although it's more religious than Europe still, you see a rise in the number of people in their 20s who say that they are none of the above, no religious affiliation. So this idea of secularization or Christian decline, depending on how you want to put it, is real. Um, But the question is, what's causing it? Since the Enlightenment, we've had a secular answer to that question, and that is, well, you can expect Christianity to decline because it's what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a, a superstitious bundle of beliefs 
that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, uh, there's data that shows the opposite, that if, as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God. There are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family. Well, and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg, which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West. And I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a, a sense of support between uh, the family and how that the, as the family falls apart, we're less inclined to go to church. We're not working mm-hmm. together in, in kind of that harmonious unit anymore that we're no longer then as actively participating in the church. So I guess it kind of comes down to which comes first. Does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family? Does family decline lead to religious disintegration or is it a bit of both? Well, I think it's both, but the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that they have a problem with this part of Scripture or that part or that it's not reasonable to believe in the Bible, and then comes the decline of the family. This is how conventional sociologists tell the story. But my point is there's something else going on here, which is that family decline encourages religious decline. And let let me just give you a few examples of what I mean by that, because there are things that everybody can understand. So we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home, for example. We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic Christian idea of God as a benevolent, loving Father. Mm -hmm. Because if you've never known a benevolent, loving Father, that's an idea that's foreign to you. So that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief. None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become, you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. We live in a world with falling birth rates and smaller families Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. 
don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh, exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby? So these are just some examples of what in the book I refer to as the phenomenon that family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy. So this is a two-way street. It's not just that religious decline leads to family decline. It's also that not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief. Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church. We went together as a family and participated as a family in, in uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents as a single parent would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm working two jobs and I've got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it. Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand, hey, there's benefits to all of this. And when I grow up and someday have a family of my own, I wish to continue these self-same traditions. So is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity, as you're suggesting? Yes, and continuing those traditions is a big part of it. This is something else I talk about in the book. You know, a lot of people uh, say, well, it's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, etc., uh, so they're still spiritual, they're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations, and part of the reason is that, for whatever reason, it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country, and not just in this country, but across uh, Europe and Israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied. For whatever reason, secular people have no families or small families. So what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations. So non-traditional households, uh, you know, might go to church and regard themselves as Christians, but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And well, that's a really uh, interesting phenomenon. And, and the other thing, too, we can make an interesting uh, contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this. And this is something that for a long time, certainly in, in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation uh, within the church, helped grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at a fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God, 
Mary Eberstadt, best-selling authors with us today. Uh, the new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West, and most importantly, it wrestles through the question, is there anything we can do to stop this decline, or is this something that's simply inevitable, as much as we might anticipate it, looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire, that eventually this is just the way things are going to be, do you think? Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this sort, which, which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one by one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they? Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in, in this administration, you could argue that um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, but that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road. How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophying going on of not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then, too, the, the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, the, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country. Single parents, you know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, first of all, in the book, the first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline, this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable, that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism, I think. The second thing I think is really interesting is the relationship between Christian decline and the welfare states of the West. For many decades now, we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes. If you remember the, the Julia video that was part of the re-election campaign of President Obama, that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state, from daycare to old age, that's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there, but if we look at what the welfare states of the West uh, are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as, as laymen and laywomen, 
we see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state, picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the West. And we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around. It's really as simple as that. It's more obvious in Western Europe than in America quite yet, but we are headed in the same direction just as we were headed in the same direction with rates of family fracture and rates of secularization. So the point is when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home. They go to church. They look for those elemental, organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up, and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And for that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the, the uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival. Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened, uh, certainly, Sandy Hook. It happened after 9-11. So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that, in a sense, might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West? Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, one of the things I, I note with interest is that I, in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about. But one was the, the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing. Um, you know, that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways, I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because adversity made people think twice about um, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So... I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the the toll, the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of, and that people of the future will have a more expansive 
understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today. You know, so I see all kinds of grounds for hope out there. It's always sad, though, when we have to um, realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, but maybe, as you suggest, Mary, hopefully, as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention of folks, that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church, uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. It's a fascinating read, and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is its author and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton, and you can get it online, uh, certainly through Amazon.com. Also, Mary has a website, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. It's also the title of the book. Easy to remember, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. And it is... Uh, it's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to uh, Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not... Um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore had been locations where um, faith, particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are a persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And... What we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over and sending us theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we saw as nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No. But until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore 
you know, uh, I don't, I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or, or theocracy or or, or or theology or things of that nature. And so, it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is. Um an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case Islam. But what about here in America? Um, we're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequent on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrary to this notion of, of, again, the anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good or for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians have used it, but they still had this control. What, what's happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society, where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power, never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted grounds, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, Doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided that it's only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their, in their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's it's very hard for for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever adjective you want to use. Uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia? 
because it is different than many of the other types of, of phobias that are out there. And by that, I mean this doctor. Racism, I mean, uh, clearly an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, they're, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual, a, a sense of, uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group, and uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point and come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Uh, seemingly, um, uh, what's the best way to phrase this? Uh, inconsistently applied. And, and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a, a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or, or, or in, in, not, not consistently applied? Well, I think that those with Christianophobia, they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable. And as long as Christians do that which is acceptable, then they don't face any of these pressures. That's when Christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable. Uh, and, of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others... Uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like, like anything else. I mean, if you, if you do what I agree, you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with, and then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot, experiment of America, that there's been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, Some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? 
you know, I would just say it's just a matter of, you know, that the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it, and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for, for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of uh, true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to uh, opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, and this, what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonged to this group, would you be more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Evangelicals a little bit less, about 40 to 35%. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So, there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that even Joker Fundamentalist may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end... It begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet they pull on the moniker of we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore there, there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism. 
uh, and we can look at other problems. So, so Christians are not are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming in and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so, while yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things. We victimized some people. Uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a both-and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians. But we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people with Christian phobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous, I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder... Um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that to uh, a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together uh, so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice. And we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, we've just kind of... Um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to anti Christian bias. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.